0: The Old Testament reading is from Isaiah chapter 65, and it's Isaiah's vision that he gets from the Lord of the new heavens and the new earth, the new creation. Why would we we be talking about new creation uh, on Easter Sunday? And this will come out in the epistle reading too, is because Easter, the resurrection of Jesus, is the guarantee that God is going to fix everything in the end. And Isaiah 65 is a vision of that. God says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, And the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old. And the sinner a hundred years old shall be considered accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer; while they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together; the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. the readings from First Corinthians fifteen. More on this in a few minutes. It's the sermon text. Paul says, "If in this life, if, if in this life only, we have hoped in Christ." We are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. This is the word of the Lord. The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the 24th chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. It's a resurrection account from Luke's Gospel. On the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb. "'taking the spices they had prepared. "'And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. "'But when they went in, "'they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. "'While they were perplexed about this, "'behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. "'And as they were frightened "'and bowed their faces to the ground, the "'the men said to them, "'Why do you seek the living among the dead? "'He's not here, but is risen. "'Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee?' Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, O Christ. Christ. Good Friday service for those of you who were here. I started off by talking about um, a common argument uh, against Christianity is the argument of suffering and evil. How can a good How can a God who's both good and all-powerful allow suffering to happen? We talked about that. Uh, what I want to do t- this morning for the Easter Sermon is to start off talking about a common argument uh, for religion. Uh, a common argument that you will hear uh, just average people say, this is why religion is good. Uh, so there's a guy named uh, Stephen Asma who is a professor of philosophy at Columbia College in Chicago. And he wrote a book uh, several years ago called Why We Need Religion. And in this book, he argues that religion is important uh, for humanity because we need help managing our emotions. Uh, there are things we go through in life that uh, are painful. There are things that we go through that are exhilarating. And kind of kind of knowing like what to do with your feelings about all these different things is uh, difficult. And religion, uh, uh, asthma uh tells us is the main job of religion is to help us to sort of navigate these feelings. Now, he actually is an atheist, but he's arguing that religion is good for this. And I'll I'll explain a little bit. Let me read a little bit uh, of what he says. Emotional therapy is the animating heart of religion. The heart of religion is how it helps us with our emotions, like I was saying. Its true value lies in its therapeutic power, particularly its power to manage our emotions. You are bereaved. And being able to tell yourself it's okay because they're in a better place. There's an afterlife. There's some sort of heaven where my loved ones have gone and they're not miserable anymore. That's good for you. That helps actually mitigate your grief, which if you had no clue where they were, uh, might be out of control for some people. Right? So you're, you're abandoned by somebody and just knowing that there's a God who's in charge helps you feel better about this you find out that you have uh, terminal disease. And knowing that there's an afterlife helps you get through the the process of your own dying. And so the real value of religion, he says, here's a quote, the real value of religion is not in telling us what to think. Religion particularly is very bad at doing that, he argues, because there's really no such thing as God. And so when religion says to you, you should believe in God, it's actually telling you a lie. The the, the notion that there's a God who became human and died and then rose from the dead is actually, it's just nonsense. That sort of truth claim, you should reject that. However, if by holding on to these sorts of lies, you can get through your day a little bit easier, then religion is very helpful for you. And you should embrace your Christianity. This is actually, uh, you know, it's when he's challenged, too, like if if you challenge uh, somebody like asthma, uh, which the uh, the new atheists do, the new atheists led by people like Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins, and say, but actually that's false comfort. Like, it's not worth believing in lies, even if they make you feel better. The way asthma will respond is, is he'll say, but religion isn't, you, you're, you're misunderstanding me, religion, its truth claims should be ignored. It's mainly there to help you feel better. If you, if you enjoy listening to Mozart's magic flute and it gives you pleasure, that pleasure is not false just because there's no such thing as magic flutes. That's the way religion is. Religion is like listening to music. It stirs up feelings in you or it calms feelings which shouldn't be stirred up. And so it's helpful in a sense. This sort of thinking is super common. I have a student... Uh, Lewis and Clark, who I got to know pretty well, who uh, was a super nice guy, and we got along great. Uh, himself, an agnostic, who told me, I don't believe in Christianity, and I don't believe in religion in general, but I do think that religions, I think that they're good because they help people. Now, his, his deal wasn't emotions. I do think that, that religions help people be moral. I think it helps society. If there's some sort of notion that there's a God up there who's going to punish you if you murder somebody else, it probably helps some people not murder, and so I think that religions have a nice role in our society. Uh, I maybe I should, as a religious person myself, I should probably embrace these sorts of like arguments, but uh, I find them empty and vapid. And the reason why is I think for the same reason that Paul finds them empty and vapid, because. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, look at the first line of the epistle reading. If Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, verse 19, if in this life only we have hoped in Christ, if if the only benefit Christ has to us is to make me feel better in this life, if the only benefit I have from Christ in this life is it helps me not steal property from my neighbor, if it helps me when my uh, close friends die to not cry so much, then I am of all people the most to be pitied. See what he says there? Like, if there's no resurrection of the dead, we're pretty pitiful. That's what he means. He's like, this is a pretty lame act if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. He, you know, he's going to say this a little bit. This is not in our text, but if you're, you know, if you have your Bible open and you're looking at the text in the Bible and you jump down to verse 32 of chapter 15, you'll see that he uh, kind of expanding on this says basically, look, I mean, there are way better ways than religion to have good feelings. Like, I, there's drugs out there. There's alcohol. There's vacations. There's sex. There's really delicious meals. Like, if you want good feelings, do you really want to get up early in the morning and go to church? He says in verse 32, like, if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, this is his quote, let's eat and drink and be merry because we're going to die sometime, so let's just have a good time right now. I mean, so that's basically would be my argument back to asthma. Dr. Asthma would be, I don't need religion to make me feel better. There's lots of more efficient, easier, more enjoyable things than religion out there to control my emotions. But, in fact, verse 20, Christ has been raised from the dead. That changes everything. The point isn't my emotions. The point isn't my thoughts. The point is all of reality has hinged around a curving point. And it's changed. And everything that you think and everything that you know and everything that you do is now underneath this huge cosmic fact that the dying God has come back to life. I'm not going to unpack this here. If we go back to the beginning of chapter 15, we would talk about this, and I talked about this last Easter. If you want to talk about this later on, get a hold of me and we can. Paul's argument that Jesus has risen from the dead, in case any of you and all of you are saying this in your head, whether you're super devout or whether you're an agnostic, and anywhere in between, all of you at this point are saying, how do you know that Jesus rose from the dead? Let me just point out to you real quickly, this is a side note. Paul's argument that Jesus rose from the dead is not religious. He does not say, Christ rose from the dead. I know that's super weird, but you just got to try to believe this. Somewhere inside of you, just believe it. That's asthma business. That's that whole just, it's, it's, inter- it's internal. It's a feeling inside of you. Paul's argument is not religious at all has nothing to do with faith or disposition towards God. It has everything to do with history. Look, tons of people saw him rise from the dead. Go ask them if you want to. Those same people who saw him rise from the dead were executed for insisting in their dying day that they saw him rise from the dead. What kind of moron would die for a lie that he made up? This is Paul's argument. Why are tens, hundreds of thousands, by Paul's day, possibly millions of people confessing that Jesus is Lord, if it didn't happen. Just gonna leave that right there for now. In fact, Christ has been raised from that. Go back to verse 20. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You know what first fruits are? First fruits, this is in the Jewish religion. It's in the Hindu religion. It's in lots of Kwanzaa festivals. It's an ancient form of worship where you would take the first bale of your crop or the first sheaf of your harvest and you would take it to the local place of worship and you would offer it up at the local place of worship as a sign of thanksgiving to the gods who have given us this great harvest. But also, it's a sign of this. Same way when we tithe. It's a sign that I'm giving you this first sheath, thanksgiving, but also as a symbol that you own everything. Everything that I have, the rest of my crop, I'm going to eat some of it, I'm going to sell some of it, I'm going to feed my flock with some of it, but it doesn't really belong to me. I acknowledge that it belongs to whatever the deity you're worshiping. In the Jews' case, the Creator God Paul's going to borrow that language here and he's going to say Christ has been raised from the dead, he is the first fruits of those who sleep. Those who sleep, that's Greek slang for dead people. So uh, like, you know, passed away. It's 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 the Greek equivalent of the English passed away. Those of you who have slept, it's like you're out in the field waiting to be harvested. Christ is raised first. He is the first fruits, but because he is the first fruits, that means that he's the guarantee that all of you will be raised from the dead too someday. Everybody who belongs to Jesus, that's language we'll use here in a few minutes, will someday be given new life. Just as Jesus was given a new glorious life on that first Easter Sunday, someday you too will be given that new glorious life. Now, go to verse 21 and 22. Paul's going to start to explain this, and the way he's going to do it is this. By pulling us into the big story, the capital S story. For as by a man came death, he's talking about Adam, the first man, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, because of what Adam did rebelling against God, all of us die. So also in Christ, the second true man, shall all be made alive. Now what's this business with Adam and Jesus and the first man and the second man and the death and the life? What he's doing is he's saying this. Christ's resurrection from the dead, the guarantee of our resurrection from the dead, is not just some quirky fact. It's not like, well, that's amazing. That's a great ending to that story. This really, really great guy died and he rose from the dead. Well, that's great. Now I don't have to be sad because he died. And neither is it. He rose from the dead. And the main meaning of that is it proves he's divine. That's not the point either. The point is bigger than that. The point starts at the beginning of the time, to- beginning of time in the universe and it goes all the way to the end of time in the universe. The point is the big meta narrative. We talked about this a few weeks ago. A meta narrative is a huge story that sits on top of your story and my story and gives meaning to our story. The Bible claims to be a meta narrative. It claims to be a big, capital S story, the controlling story of the universe, into which all of our individual stories of our lives are invited to fit into like little puzzle pieces. And all Paul is doing here is saying, go back to the big story. God created this beautiful world that he wanted to glorify him And he created humans, like me and you, to be his vicegerents here, to rule over in his name, to treat the, to, to treat the environment well, to treat each other well, to live a life of worship. And instead, what did the first man do and all of us inside of him? We rebelled against him and screwed the whole thing up. Now it's impossible to have perfectly clear relationship with God. Now it's impossible to have a perfectly clear relationship with each other even, even the people that you're closest to and care most about. There's walls and there's veils there. There's misunderstandings. There's disillusionments. There's disagreements over silly semantic things. And that's even our best relationships. Even our relationship with ourself is now broken. You don't even know who you are. We're sometimes confused with the stuff that pops into our head, the feelings that we have that come and go. Our relationship with the environment is now broken. It's pretty conclusive after several thousand years that humans have done a pretty good job of screwing this place up. All of that is because of the fall. God, however, insists that because you humans mess this thing up, I'm going to use you humans to fix these things. Now look in the mirror. Look around. Which one of us is going to step up and fix the curse? Well, there's none of us. And so God's plan is to become himself, the one true perfect human. And he does. And he dies. We talked about this on Friday. And he rises from the dead to fix everything. That's the big story. He's the first fruits. He's the guarantee, though, that someday everything's going to be repaired. Your relationship with yourself, your relationship with everybody else, our relationship with the environment is going to be put right someday because of Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, where does that leave us? Go to verse 23. What Paul is going to do here is he's going to tell the story of our life between Jesus' resurrection and the final resurrection. You and I are living somewhere, you know, 2019, somewhere in between Jesus' resurrection on that first Easter and the final resurrection when God puts everything to rise someday. What does that mean for us? Look at verse 23. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, that's the uh, first Easter Sunday. Then it is coming when Jesus returns, those who belong to Christ. Those are the bookends. Christ the first fruits and then the second coming when those who belong to Christ are raised from the dead. And that's the end, verse 24. Then comes the end when Jesus, at the very end, Jesus is going to deliver the kingdom of the universe to God the Father. After, now he's going to bring us back into the middle where we're at. After destroying every rule and every authority and power. So somewhere here in the middle where we're at, Christ is destroying every rule and every authority and every power. That's what's going on right now. We're living in the process of God reclaiming creation as his own. We're living in the process of God destroying every authority and rule and power that would be opposed to him. Now, I've hammered on this quite frequently recently. Let me do it one more time. Both of our political parties oppose Jesus. Now, I'm not saying there's lots of you in here are Republicans, lots of you in here are Democrats. I'm not saying you're opposed to Jesus. I'm saying that each one of your political parties desires to have the control desires to rule over the United States. Only Jesus has the right to claim that. And I'm not telling you, again, I'm not telling you not to vote. I'm not telling you even to identify as Republican or as Democrat, as long as that sits under the lordship of Jesus Christ. As long as you understand that your main citizenship is in heaven, that your main allegiance is to King Jesus, not to the party platform of your favorite party. Let's bring it closer to home. What about me? I have a sort of authority here. It's kind of a lame authority. Right, I'm the pastor of this church. Jesus sits in judgment on that authority. Every little bit of ounce inside of me, and there's lots of ounces inside of me, that want to have control, that want to get what I want, that want to somehow manipulate you into doing what I want you to do. Jesus sits in judgment on that. And Jesus insists that I bow the knee and let him be king of this church. I'm always fighting him. He's in the process, hopefully, sanctification, right? He's in the process of slowly humbling me more and more all the time to where I'm willing to be a servant, to sit underneath the authority of King Jesus. Every bit of our culture, every bit of our political life, every bit of our entertainment life, every bit of our family life, every bit of our personal life is underneath the authority of King Jesus. And he's slowly conquering all these authorities and rules and powers like he says in verse 24. Because, verse 25, he must reign. It is his destiny to reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Now look what what that means. Verse 25, Jesus is going to reign until, so here we are at this poll now, until he puts all enemies under his feet. That's the final one he's talking about in verse 24, I'm going to deliver the kingdom to God the Father. But is that when he starts to reign? No, according to verse 25, he's reigning even now. He must reign until the point where he puts all enemies under his feet. What does that mean? It is, here's what it means. It is not as that Jesus has this kingdom of God army And there's this other kingdom of evil army out there and there's this cosmic battle to see who's going to win. Who is reigning even now, according to verse 25? King Jesus. And what that means is that the whole universe already belongs to him, including St. James Lutheran Church, including me. But there's these little pockets of rebellion stirring up civil war. I'm constantly at it. I'm constantly trying to stir up rebellion against the king. In my own heart, with you guys trying to get you to do what I want you to do instead of being mainly concerned with us following King Jesus. He is stamping out those rebellions one by one until the entire universe. We looked at this in Philippians 2 last week. Until the entire universe, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is the destiny that he's working towards. And then finally, verse 26, right at the very end, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. The most powerful force in the world, way powerful than Pastor Aaron. Way powerful than the Democrats and the Republicans. Way powerful than whatever political force you can think of. Way powerful than whatever entertainment force you can think of. Whatever cultural force you can think of. The one power that always wins is death. And Jesus has proved on that first Easter Sunday that there's nothing that can beat him. That there's no grave that can hold him down. And because you belong to him, there's nothing that can beat you. There's no grave that can hold you down. There's no power in the face of the universe even including the power of death, that is strong enough to conquer you because Jesus will reign. Okay. Now, what do we do with that? Two big things. That This morning, here, in 2019, I want us to take away from Easter that we can walk out of here and make hay with this this week. The first is this. Be confident. Be confident because Jesus reigns, you belong to him, and our destiny is to rule and reign with him forever. Sometimes we as Christians... We're actually too scared to love the unbelievers around us. We're even too scared to love each other because we're just afraid that people are out to get us. I mean, you know, you've heard Christians talk. I I think like this sometimes. I talk like this sometimes. Like the culture's out to get us and like, oh no, the enemies of the cross are rising up and they're going to like make our church illegal and we're going to be underneath the thumb of like these people who don't like us. It's a little small rebellious fires that Jesus goes around stamping out. We have no reason to be afraid of anybody or anything. We should be liberated to love everybody around us. You're not scared of your kids. Are, they, are you when you know, the three-year-old kid starts fussing at you about, you know, they, they want this to eat, and then you give them that to eat, and then they don't want that to eat, so you take it away, and then they yell for you to give it back to them? Does that scare you? Do you like, oh, oh no, I, well, that kid doesn't like me. What am I going to do? No, of course not. You love that kid, and you bend over backwards to try and serve that kid because you can see that that kid is just a kid. That's how we should think about the world around us. They're like little kids, lost in the immaturity of unsalvation, lost in the immaturity of lostness. And so we love them because we're the mature ones. We're the ones who know the big capital S story. We're the ones who know that Jesus rules and reigns and loves them desperately and wants to feed them desperately with the food that he has to offer them. We should be liberated to be confident and to love. But here's the second thing. This is kind of even bigger than the first thing. We should be free to participate in Jesus' mission to rule the world. And that means affirming, in every little tiny place of our life, affirming the lordship of Jesus Christ. Affirming that he is the master of every little part of our life. And the temptation is going to be to relegate Jesus to little tiny squares of our life. This is what asthma is trying to get us to do. Like So the way that you vote, the way that you respond when you hit a bad golf shot, the way that you choose what to eat, The way you choose how to spend your money. That's your own business over here. You're a sovereign, free, grown, postmodern individual. Your emotions, though, Jesus can help you with that. Let Jesus have your emotions. That's always going to be the temptation. I've used this analogy before. I'll, I'll use it again. The temptation is going to make Jesus another app on your phone, along with your finances, your leisure time, your thoughts, Every once in a while, Sunday mornings, you know, a lot of you, some of you, maybe one Sunday a month, maybe a couple Sundays a year, you'll pop the Jesus app open for a little bit. Oh yeah, I'm a Christian, there it is, Jesus app. Church is over, you swipe it out, you pop open the lunch app, and you move on to that next portion of your life. But Jesus insists that he is the Lord of every square inch, every millisecond of our lives, Jesus is the Lord of those things. How you feel, how you think, the way that you spend your money, the way that you treat your neighbors, the way that you treat your spouse, the way that you treat your kids, the way that you walk into work every morning, the way you do your job, the way you mow your yard, the way you roll out of bed, the way you breathe, the way you drink, the way you think, the way you sleep. Every single little tiny part of our lives is under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And we have to resist the culture's urge to say, that's fine, religion is great for you guys. You just squeeze it over here into this little private place of your life. A lot of you uh, watched this past week as Notre Dame burned in Paris. And I was watching it, of it course, was, it was not anywhere near as tragic as my, my first memory of this sort of like huge event that you pop the TV on and just like watch it unfold was the Challenger explosion. And of course, the Challenger explosion in the 80s was way more tragic than this. And of course, the events of 9-11, way more tragic than the burning of Notre Dame. I'm not trying to compare those things, but but similar in my experience to the way that like I downstairs in my office, I turned on the news and just watched Notre Dame burn. I like, just couldn't take my eyes off of it, and I watched a bunch of different channels. You know, uh, I watched a bunch of the d- different news networks, and almost all of them had a commentator on there who would say something like this. I'm going to quote this, and those of you who watched it, you'll know what I'm saying. A lot of commentators would say stuff like this. Notre Dame, of course, is a church. It's a house of worship. But we have to remember that it's much more than that. It's a cultural symbol of France. It's an historical event. Not just a building, but it's an historical event in the life of the French people. Did you catch what I just said there? Notre Dame is a church. But it's much more than that. It's cultural. Like, church is great. If you can squeeze it down to this little tiny part of your life. And what I'm saying is is that culture is great. History is great. Notre Dame is much more than that. It's a place where God meets with his people. That's the most important thing in the universe. Why? Because Jesus rose from the dead. And now he is the master of everything. He's the master of the entire universe. And that includes every square inch of your life, every millisecond of your life. And he invites all of us to participate in this mission of bringing about the new creation because of the power of his resurrection. Amen.